food, there's food everywhere around the building. So you can go apparently on a food scavenger hunt and find it in every corner. So it's in the back of the room, it's in the cafe, it's downstairs. Who, who knows? I mean, it could be up here. You could just go anywhere and find it. So, um, yeah, we, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, we won't get in. We'll, we'll do that food later, <laughs> the food that's up here. Um, anyway, good morning. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. If, I, if we haven't met yet, my name's Jay. Uh, I get to lead this community and uh, I'm privileged to do so. Um, it's great to be with you this morning. We're, this is our family gathering um, and we gather as the family of God because we want to hear from him. We want to experience his presence with us uh, because we are his kids. And we want to be equipped uh, to go out and live out the life that our dad uh, wants for us as well as the, the life that uh, the spirit that he puts in us enables us to live. And so that's why we're here this morning. Uh, if you were here last week, you'll know that we started a new series called For the Good of the Garden State. And uh, if you're not aware, that term, for the good of the Garden State, comes right out of our mission statement. Uh, As a church, our mission for the last five and a half years since we planted Cultivate has been to grow communities that are rooted in the gospel, that produce fruit for the good of the Garden State. And so we we really see ourselves and we pray that God would continue to multiply not just one community, but multiple communities that are embedded all across the Garden State that are saturating it with the gospel uh, for others' good, regardless of whether or not they come to belief in Christ. And we believe that 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 is the the purpose for which God is ransoming and bringing a community around himself would be so that this community that's empowered by Jesus would be a display of what he's like to absolutely everyone. Um, so that, and we, we know as, as his people that there will be a day when every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and what God is doing today is he's bringing a people to himself that can be a display of what's coming down the road. And so that's really what this, this uh, whole series is about, is that we are, we are asking the question, what does it look like for literally for heaven to come to earth as Jesus prayed? for his will to be done in the garden state as it is in heaven. And then what does it mean for us as a community to understand how to be those kind of people that would live out heaven, kind of a a, a heavenly life, if you will, here on earth until the the day that God comes and and does the renewal through Jesus Christ. So that's that's what we're talking about. Um, And so for the first half of the series, what we're doing is we're, we're looking at six key ideas of what it looks like for... For heaven to come down as Jesus prayed. What would the garden state look like if it was living in a state of heavenly renewal is basically the question that we're looking at. And so if you were with us last week, we talked about reconciliation, that, that God wants to see people of different backgrounds and races and socioeconomic classes and, and, and even people that have had deep personal conflict and, and brokenness reconcile. And in, in terms of being one new community that would display what he's like. So we're, as we go through this series, here's the other ones that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about justice, which we'll talk about next week, hospitality, communion, and blessing. And so the first half of the series, we're going to talk about these six things. And then the second half, we're going to talk a little bit more about what it means to be the kind of community that, that pursues those six things. So today, what we're going to talk about is generosity, that um, what it means to be 
a state uh, after Jesus' own heart for the garden state would mean that, that we are a state that's overflowing with generosity. And it's funny, if you look at the history of the garden state, even the reason why it's called the garden state is because the garden state was a state of generosity. There was incredible amounts of things being produced in the garden state so much so that New Jersey couldn't contain those things. It had to spill out into other places. And so the reason why New Jersey got the name the Garden State is because there was a lawyer who founded Cherry Hill, actually, that, that said at the centennial of our, our nation that New Jersey produces so much that Philadelphia and New York just receive the blessing of what's produced here. It's, New Jersey's like a barrel that's open on both ends, and the produce is just spilling out from each side onto both of those great cities. And both of those great cities are blessed as a result of having New Jersey as a neighbor. Now, wouldn't it be great if the nation still saw New Jersey that way? <laughs> right? And yet, I, I've, I've gone around the country enough uh, and lived in, in other parts of the country enough to know that that's typically not the case, right? Now, I think some of that's misperception, because they, if they lived here, they would know certain things about it. But, I mean, you know as a New Jerseyan, or even if you're a transplant, but you've lived here long enough, that a lot of those things are actually true, right? So, so let me ask this, just as we kind of get started. What is it, it, it when you think about our, our culture here, our city, uh, uh, if you think of South Jersey as a city, um, how, in what ways is it generous? How do you actually see generosity here? Yeah. So there, it's, it's fertile in a number of ways. Does that make it generous? No, not really, right? What's that? It's the potential for generosity, right? Yeah, we're going to talk about why that might not be the case, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so we talked about that a little bit too last week in terms of reconciliation, that when trial comes, it creates a spurt of reconciliation, a, a, a momentary kind of, uh, you know, like bright light of, of generosity, and then that generosity quickly fades, right? And that certainly happened in Sandy when that hit. It's like, if you have need and I have stuff, then you have my stuff. That's just the way that it works. And then over time, that that sense of generosity goes away. It's not sustainable. And so we have to know what is sustainable to create a state of generosity in our own hearts and for our state. But, I mean, just thinking of your own heart, if, I, if, if you were just going to be honest, what keeps you from being generous? When, you're, when you sense a call to being generous, what, what draws you back? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so sometimes what holds us back are the is that we want to control the impact of our generosity, right? And so we think, well, if I'm generous, they might not receive my generosity in the way that I would want them to, which could hold me back. Or it might be a cultural expectation that well, this is this the way that everybody acts. We're not front porch people anymore. We're backyard folks. And we erect walls to keep people out rather than front porches to invite people in. It's just, I mean, even in the architecture of our country, that started to change during the 40s, 50s, and 60s. 
is that, is that we started to section off and see people as competition rather than as neighbors to bless, right? Yeah. Yeah, so some of that is, is this mentality of like, well, that's somebody else's job. Whether it's a social program or government assistance, that they're, they're the ones that are supposed to be generous. And I, they take from my income so that they can be generous with others. And so I don't, my hands are clean of it. I don't need to do that. And it's interesting because we can often see the church that same way, right? We can kind of see the church as being a social institution that we go to and pay for certain services, and then it's the church's job to be those who are generous to the world. I just, hopefully, if I can pop that bubble a little bit, we are the church. You are the church, according to Jesus. If you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, you are it, which means the expectation is not on a social program through the church, it's actually on the people that God chooses to dwell in, and he wants us to be generous, right? I saw a couple hands. Let go back there and then up here. Yeah, right. So we, we look down on those who have need as if it's entirely their fault. Or even if it is entirely their fault, we still have little compassion on them because we don't realize that God... The way that the grace of God works, right, in our own lives is that it's our fault that we broke relationship with him. And yet he still gives us grace in return for sin. And sometimes we don't see people that way, right? Yeah. Yeah, so oftentimes we'll, we say something along the lines of, well, I would give if I had the resources to, but because it's a sacrifice, I must not be, you know, it must not be necessary for me to give or it's hard for me to give. And, and so we don't want to be sacrificial people. We'll talk about why that is, but yeah. Yeah, so we could be... F- fearful of offending people that might be in need or fearful if we're in need of revealing that need to others because the expectation is our, in our culture is that you're fine, I'm fine, everyone's fine, we're all fine, right? We're all okay. I'll just keep my needs behind my front door, you keep your needs behind your front door, I'll learn your name but nothing more than that. That's our social contract. And Jesus goes, that's, that's not the kingdom of God. That's not the way God wanted us to operate in the world. Right, yeah, so we're worried about our own needs. The Bible has a few things to say about that. We'll get into that one, yeah. (laughs) Keith. Yeah, it's funny because we'll we'll say that to ourselves as a way of of justifying us holding back. That, well, if I give, then they'll take advantage of the gift. Not real, like, have we ever taken advantage of the grace of God? Have we ever taken any gift from him and failed to give him recognition for it? Or, or keep, you know, or, or do we run back to him and go, God, I need today, and I need more, and I need more, and I need more. We take advantage of him all the time, and yet he's still generous with us. And we don't realize that often. Yeah. Yeah. So we see it as something we earn rather than a gift. We'll give him that too. You guys are doing the sermon for me, by the way. You're hitting all my points. So I'm going to go ahead and stop before you ruin everything, okay? Because <laughs> I've got to move on. Um, but here's, here's the truth. I think this is the bottom line. Uh, we, um, when we think about the, our culture, when we think about society as a whole and the places that we live, all of us desire to live in a community that would be generous, right? Does anybody not desire that? Like, I, I want a community where everyone is completely stingy with everything that they have. Nobody's raising their hand. Okay. 
But here's the thing. In order to get a state of generosity, we need a state of generosity in our hearts. It begins with you, and it begins with me. And if it doesn't begin with us, as the people of God, the God of generosity, it will begin with no one, family. Right? I mean, let's just be clear about that. If it doesn't happen in our own hearts, it doesn't happen. In fact, if it doesn't happen in our hearts, the story of God, what what it tells us is that He will actually raise up another group of people who He does work through and is generous as He is generous with Him. And so that should be a warning to us that we have an invitation from our God to understand what it means to have a state of generosity in our hearts. But if we choose to resist Him, He will actually use others. Because He will enact a state of generosity in the garden state. It is coming. He will do it. And He will either do it through us or He will do it through another group of people. Ultimately, He will do it through His Son when he returns, but it will happen. And so we, we, we're, we're at this moment where, where we have to understand that if we, we, if we want to see the change that God is bringing into the world, the people that he wants to use are us. They're us. We cannot look at anyone else. And so we have to understand what that means to have a heart of generosity if we want to see it happen. If you want to see it happen in your neighborhood, or in your workplace, or or with your group of friends. God is saying the person that it was going to begin with is you, or he's going to use someone else. And and that's that's the story, actually, in in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is one of the the longest kind of uh, explanations of what it looks like to be a generous people. And and Paul is going to, to talk to the Corinthian church about this concept of generosity and seeding in generosity into your hearts. And so if we, if we want to see change, we've we got to go to the source of what it looks like. So let's read. If you're, if you're going to follow along with us, it's on page 806, uh, starting on page 806. It's a little bit of a long section, but I want you to see what he's getting at here. And so we're going to start in um, chapter 8, verse 8. We're going to go through ch- uh, verse 15, and then we're going to skip down to... Um, chapter 9, verse 6, and go to verse 12. So I'm not commanding you, he says to the Corinthians, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the ones not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is accessible according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not... That others might be reviled, that that others might be reviled while you are hard pressed, relieved but while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written: the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Now, skip down to to chapter nine, verse six. Remember this, 
Whoever sows sparingly will reap will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As is, as it is written, They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. And then in verse 15, he says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. See, here's here's what he's saying to the Corinthians, and we need to understand this. The mark of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the, the, the character quality, that we should expect of people that know God and understand the grace of God every single time, every single person is a life of generosity. You can't get away from it. One uh, inevitably goes with the other every single time. So here's the question. This is the one I was kind of wrestling with this week. What does it mean to be generous? How do you know if you're generous or not? Is there a dollar amount that you can put to it? Is there a circumstance that you can attach to it? Because here's the thing. In so many other ways of life, you can tell if you're doing something or not. Right? Like um, if if you're investing, you can tell if you're investing because there's a a percentage, right? And And you can tell because after 30 years you have enough to live on when you retire. And you go, that's the proof. I've invested. In, in so many other areas of life, you can tell whether or not you're doing something. You know what the hardest one is? It's generosity. It's hard to know whether you're being generous or not. And so here's the context that Paul is talking about in Second Corinthians. He's writing to this church in Corinth who is pretty well off. They're doing okay. And, and they're a, a church that's primarily Gentiles, which means they're non-Jewish. And they're, he's asking them to raise money to support some poor uh, family members in the, in the church that are living in Jerusalem. And those family, those brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, are Jewish Christians who are experiencing a famine. And they're in great need. And so Paul goes, uh, one of the things that he does when he's on his missionary journeys and when he's writing letters is he's going around to all these other churches throughout Asia Minor who, who, are, weller, who, who are more well-off than the church in Jerusalem, at least by their standards, and, and he's asking them to give to their poorer brothers and sisters who are unable to even eat. And, and here's the crazy thing, because if I were raising support for these brothers and sisters, the first thing that I would do is tell them how much I'm asking for. I mean, wouldn't you do the same? If you knew that their need consisted of, I don't know, like a $1,000 gift per church, 
and you were going around to all these churches, the first thing that you would go, do is go, listen, I just need a thousand bucks for them. I mean, we can do that, right? We're capable. That's generous. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He focuses on why they should be generous. Not how, not how much. He, he, he focuses on their hearts. He says, I'm not commanding you to give. I'm not commanding you to be generous, but I want to test the sincerity of your love. Now, if you look down in verse 11, he says, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. And then in 9 verse 7, he says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, what he's saying is, if you think about the, the, the grace of God that you have, it should result in you having so much joy for what God has done for you that your natural response of your heart would be generosity at all times. Not compulsion, not guilt, not duty, not a sense of like prosperity. If I give, then I'll get. Just joy. Joy is the, is the engine that helps us to be generous with people around us. And so what he's getting at is that as far as God is concerned, generosity is actually a matter of your heart, not your resources. It's a matter of your heart. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Because your heart and your treasure are inextricably tied together. You can tell what's happening in one by looking at the other. So you would think that what Paul would do is say, here's what it looks like to be generous, but he doesn't. He says, here's what's going on in your heart if you understand joy. And here's what will, the, the inevitable result of that joy will be. It's funny because if you, if you look at the, the flip side of that circumstance, it actually happens in Luke 11. In Luke 11, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who by everyone's standards were absolute masters of generosity. Or at least it seemed that way. They, they, were, they were people who gave all the time. In fact, they, they tithed 10% on absolutely everything. Not just their income, but their spice rack. I mean, can you imagine, like, you go and you buy some cumin at the store, and then you get home and you dump it out on your counter into 10 little segments, and then you push one to the side and you bo- bottle that up, and then you give that away to the poor. That's what they did with everything. I mean, it seems extreme, right? And you'd go, if anyone's generous, it would be those folks. And yet, when Jesus comes to them in Luke 11, and this is what he says in verse 42, woe to you. You know what that word means? Cursed are you. This is not good. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all kinds of other garden herbs but you neglect justice and the love of God. You, you do it externally, but internally your heart is far from Him. You give, but you neglect justice. You, when you give, you don't actually love the poor that you're giving the gift to. And when you give, you, you don't do it from a sense of understanding that God's love is so great in you that you can give it away without expectation of return. What he's telling them is, you're doing it for yourself. Now, how, how in the world could that possibly be? How could you be generous, at least on the externals, 
and still be doing it for yourself? What do you think? Is that possible? Okay, how? It was more about how, what, how it made them feel and the status that it gave them as spiritual people than about the gift, right? Right, so won't God love me? Or won't he see me as being good if I do this, right? Yeah. See, here, I mean, here's the thing. We can give for a whole host of reasons. We can be generous in all kinds of ways and do it with the wrong heart. We can be generous in order to gain status, to gain a name for ourselves like we talked about last week. We can be generous so that we can get something in return from God. Hey, God, don't you know I gave and I was a good person and I was really generous. Now you owe me. You can be generous or we can be generous so that we feel good about ourselves for our generosity, that we kind of give ourselves a sense of of self-esteem. And the bottom line is, if we say, how much do I have to give in order to get whatever that is? Fill in the blank. How much am I required to be generous in order to, for God to be generous in return to me? Then your generosity is actually not for the sake of others. It's for your own sake. It's for my own sake. We're not really giving to others, we're giving to ourselves. And that's not giving, that's investing. Right? See, Jesus looks at the Pharisees who are, by all accounts, meeting the requirements of the Old Testament law, which was to give percent of everything, and he condemns their hearts. Which is really scary, if you think about it, right? I mean, because... They seem to outmatch us in so many ways. And Jesus goes, I can see past all your externals. I can see what's really going on in your heart. Woe to you. See, the opposite is true, though. If your heart is generous and so filled with joy, so filled with the love that God has for you and the love that he has for others and the love that he wants to give through you to others, then then it's almost like the how and the why and the what and the how much, all that stuff, it kind of takes care of itself. Because in love, you'll actually want to be generous with those in need. You'll want to be generous just as God has been generous with you. And that's the reason, if you, I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you look through the entire New Testament, there is absolutely no requirement for how generous you should be. There's no requirement on how generous you absolutely must be. But here's the key if generosity is a matter of your heart's motivation, then the truth is we are never truly generous unless we have joy at the thought of giving. Joy at the thought of being generous with those who are in need. Motivated and moved to be generous by the Spirit of God, going, I can't help but be generous with those that that have need. See, Paul gives an example with the Macedonian church just before the section that we read And he says this about them in verse 1 to 5. He says, Brothers and sisters, I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian church. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme, what? Poverty. Welled up in rich generosity. You say, wait a second. How does that work? He says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own, 
There was no compulsion. There was no, there was no dollar amount that I gave them. There was no, there was, I didn't do anything. They just wanted to do it. For they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. He's saying that they were sacrificial in their generosity. They had needs of their own, but they saw the greater needs of their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, and they took what little they had, what little that they were living on, and they made it even smaller so that those who had less than them had something. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, what an example of, of generosity in the world. Now, why in the world would they do that? Paul says it's because they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. And what he's saying is, someone who says, how much am I required to be generous, is actually holding on to themselves. You haven't given yourselves to God yet. You haven't understood the grace that he has for you. Because the truth is, if generosity is all about our hearts, then we have a big problem. It's the same problem in our hearts as it is in the rest of the world if we don't have hearts like the Macedonians. And here's the truth. It's not a resource problem. It's not a resource problem. It's a heart problem. I remember a number of years ago, I was talking with a friend about um, kind of the state of the world, and they were one of the things that they were having a really hard time with was why God was allowing there to be so many starving children in the world. I mean, you look at the landscape of the world and you think there are so many people that, that don't even know where their next meal is coming from. And you think, how in the world could God do that? And I think one of the reasons that we see that in the world is not because of a lack of resource. It's because of a lack of heart change. 60% of the world's resources are used by 1% of the people. That's why there's starvation in the world. That is why people lack family. We can't point our fingers and wag them at God as if he's not doing something. We have only to look at ourselves and our own hearts. It's a heart issue. See, we often say, if I had more resources, then I would be more generous. Not if you don't have a new heart. Not if I don't have a new heart. The Pharisees had resources, but not the heart. The Macedonians had the heart, but not the resources. Who was generous? is the Macedonians, every single time. Rich generosity. We have no idea how much they were generous. We, have no, we, can't, we can't put a dollar amount on it. I mean, some theologians have tried to do that. I think it's foolish. Because it's not about the amount. It's about the heart. God wants our hearts, not our money. Please hear me on that. So here's, here's the issue. If we don't, understand that our hearts have a problem we won't address that problem and if we don't address that problem there are ramifications there are ramifications if we don't actually look at our hearts seriously and see whether or not we're generous and what to do about it if left unchecked in this world we will go in the direction of our culture which says hold on to it for yourself be stingy with whatever you've earned because you've earned it and it's yours right But family, we have to understand that if that's our disposition, if that's our heart, there will be consequences. There is danger for us. 
if that's our heart. And, and Paul says it this way in, in, in chapter 8, verse 13 to 15. He says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it's written, the one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Here's the thing. That makes no sense unless you know where it's a reference to. He's, in that, that line that he says at the end is a reference to a story in Exodus 16. And if you've never read that story, then what he's telling you here it, it just flies right over your head. So what's the story that he's referencing? He's talking about Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness. And that when they were going through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, they were there for 40 years and they had nothing of their own. It didn't matter how much they worked. It didn't matter how many animals they tried to hunt or how much they tried to gather. There was never going to be enough for the, the approximately 4 million people, men, women, and children, that are traipsing through the desert. It just wasn't going to happen, right? You just can't find that many trees with fruit on it in the desert. They just don't exist. I don't know if you've ever been in the desert. It's a hard place to find food for one person, let alone four million. And so they, they, they weren't going to find anything. And so what did God do for them? He provided something called manna. Now, we, have, we really don't have any idea what manna is. A lot of people think it's bread, but it's something that you can at least turn into food. So you can make it into cakes or you can do all kinds of things with it. And so he, he gave this manna. So every morning, the people of Israel would wake up from their tents. They would go outside. They would wa- they'd walk over to a field. And there in the field, God had placed for them this food source that they didn't have apart from him. And so what, what did they have to do? Do you remember? They had to go out and gather it up and bring it back. But only what they needed for that day. What happened if they got more than what they needed for the day and they ended up storing it overnight? Maggots. It would, it would rot, except for on the Sabbath. Yeah, on the Sabbath you were to gather what you needed for two days and trust that God would make it work for two instead of one. Every day they were to trust God just with that day's need and only that day's need. And so Paul brings that story into his conversation about generosity. Why does he do that? Because he's comparing our resources, our wealth, our money to manna. Now why? Because there's a danger. We have to understand something. And the first thing that he's saying about manna, which correlates to our our resources here uh, in, in 21st century New Jersey is that everything that you and I own is a gift. Everything that we own is a gift. Just the way that the manna was a gift to Israel. Even the things that we earn with our hard work are ultimately gifts from him. See, Israel had to go and gather the manna and there was work involved. I mean, you could argue how much, right? But at least they had to walk to the field to get it and walk back at least. And those who could gather more of it, I mean, think of the the kinds of people, young and old, men and women, going out to the field or out to the wilderness in the desert to gather it up. Some people could gather more and carry more back and others could gather less. But regardless of how much they could gather, if you 
gathered more and then you got back to the camp and you saw somebody else that had a need, you were expected to share what you had gathered with the one in need because they were unable to go out to the field that you were given the ability to go to to get what you were given the ability to get. And so you'd come back and everyone would have enough. Everyone could eat. And Paul is saying that is exactly the way that we should consider the resources that we've been given. Exactly. Now you might say, yeah, but I earned what I have. I earned my house. I earned what what I got. Yes, there was work involved, just like the Israelites. There was work. But the reason that your work resulted in what you have is because of the good gifts that God has given you. You could work ten times harder than you worked on Friday for what you got. And if you lived in the mountains of Haiti, you could work as hard as you possibly could work and have nothing to show for it at the end of your life. The fact that you live in the country that you do and have the mind that that can go out and do the work that you can do and have the education that you have and the experiences that you have and the relationships you have and, and the opportunities that you have, all of that God is going, all those things were a gift from me. They were all a gift. I just gave them to you. You didn't do anything to be born into the family that you were born into. But God gave you parents that valued education and sent you off to school. That was his gift to you. Everything is a gift from him. Your whole life. So what are we to learn? I mean, yes, we're to go out and and gather the manna. The Bible has a lot to say about being diligent and, and being hardworking. That's our work. But if God doesn't give the manna to the Israelites, they can't gather it on their own. They can't, there, there are no animals to go out and kill. If he does not provide, they go starving. And yet he provides. See, it's our gift. But if we don't see it as a gift, then we'll use it primarily on ourselves rather than for the good of others. This, is, this happened in our house recently. Um, my neighbor came to us out of the blue and he said, I have uh, grandkids and my grandkids told me that they like trains. So I went out and I bought a train. A really nice, expensive Lionel train set. It's on this big board. It's eight feet by four feet. And they come over to my house and they don't want to use it. So I'm getting rid of it. Do you want it? I thought, okay. That's a pretty good gift. So two weeks later, I go over to his house while the kids are at school. And we walk this Lionel train set down the street from his house to mine through the front door and into our family room. The kids get home later that day. What do you think the reaction is? Oh my gosh, where did this come from? This is amazing. Who did this come from? I said, it's our neighbor, Rich, and his wife. They, they just gave it to us. It's a pure gift, no expectation. They, just, they, they knew that you guys like trains and they just wanted to give it to you. Isn't that amazing? Wow, that's amazing. Two hours go by and the doorbell rings. They're playing with the train set. Doorbell rings. It's our other neighbors, Luke and Blake. They're coming over to play. Great. Come on in. Look at what we got. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Don't touch it. You're playing with it wrong. It's mine. What? You didn't even know it existed three hours ago. It's ridiculous. It's a gift. 
I'm talking with our kids later on, and I'm going, maybe the reason that God gave it to us was so that we could be a place where other people like to come and use our stuff. But that's not the way that they saw it. (laughs) It was theirs now. Isn't that ridiculous? Family, it's just as ridiculous with the gifts that God gives us. Isn't it? He gives a gift that we we didn't even know it existed just a little while ago. And then as soon as he gives it to us, we go, "Ah, it's it's for me, for my resources, it's for my good being. Don't touch it. Don't play with it the way that I don't want it played with. Don't come into my house and wreck stuff or leave things a mess or leave it untidy. It's mine. Respect it. It's a gift. It's to be used as a gift, not just for you, but for other people. Everything should be that way. I mean, it's crazy when we have kids react that way. As parents, we go, how in the world could you think that? And then we react the exact same way with the things that God gives us. Don't we? We do it all the time. So that's the first thing. You need to look at everything you have as a gift. That's the first step to understanding it. Because here's the danger. If we don't understand it as a gift, if you hoard the gifts that God gives you and try to store them up for yourself or only use them for for yourself, they rot and they will rot you. Not only do your resources rot, but they will rot you from the inside. See, without this understanding, when we think about generosity in general, we think that generosity itself is what's dangerous. I, like, be sacrificial? Let other people use what God has given me? What if they don't return it in the same state that it got to them in? What if they don't thank me in the way that I would like them to thank me? What if... What, what if What if I don't have control over what I give away to other people or to the church or whatever the case might be? What if, what if, what if? We think it's dangerous, but here's the thing. The reason that we think that it's dangerous to be generous, the the reason that we think it's dangerous to to be giving things away is because our things are what we put our security in. And so if, if your things are all you've got and you give those away, you are less secure rather than more secure, right? And that's the way that we see the world. See, Paul says the reason that you feel that way is because your security is in the wrong thing. That's why your heart has the problem it does. See, if your security, if your hope, your joy was in God as the giver of the good gifts, then you'd naturally believe that anything that competes for that place in your heart, that place that only God should take, puts you in greater danger. It's dangerous to our souls not to be generous. Because here's here's the result. If we're not generous with what God gives us, then our security is in what He gives us rather than in Him, which means that we will worry about it, we will be fearful over it, we'll wonder if we have enough, We'll wonder how long it will last. Is this happening at all for you? See, the the less generous we are, the more damage it's doing to our relationship with Him. In in fact, I would say it this way. If If you've gone through a long season in your life and you're wondering why you haven't grown at all, why you haven't experienced God's sweet, near presence to your heart and your life. You haven't seen his 
him for who he is and his generosity grow in your heart, maybe over the last decade, the question I would ask you as a diagnostic is not necessarily the root cause, but it's a diagnostic would be to say, when's the last time you've been radically generous like he is to you? Because that puts us in touch with him. It's a declaration to our hearts that we will not put our security in our stuff. Our security is in him and him alone. That's why Jesus said, hey, when you pray, pray this. Give us today our daily bread. Don't give us more. You see what he's referencing? He's referencing the same story about the man in the wilderness. He's saying, ask God to provide what you need for today. That's good. Do that constantly. Look to him as your provision. But if he chooses to give you more than what your needs are for today, share it and do it quick before it rots you and begins And you begin to trust in it rather than the one who gave you the bread in the first place. See, many times that's the lack of our generosity. We're we're exchanging faith in the one who's unseen for what is seen. See, and Jesus and Paul agree, if we're not generous, if we don't look at our hearts and solve the deep problem that we have, then we will constantly feel the weight of insecurity, the weight of worry, the weight of fear, because our Our resources cannot do what only God can do. They can't take his place. When's the last time you were radically generous? See, that's the problem. It's it's a hard issue. So how do we solve it? How do we become a community of generosity? And and, uh, Paul includes a number of things, I think. I'm just going to try to highlight two real quick. First is that we need a vision of what our generosity actually produces in the world. We need a a picture of what it does. And so what does Paul say happens as we are generous? He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly, this is verse 6 in in chapter 9, will reap sparingly, whoever sows generously will reap generously. Now, before you get a misunderstanding of what Paul is saying here, he's not saying if you give generously, you will get generously. I, my father-in-law loves to watch things at 3 in the morning on TV about seed money, and if you give $1,000, then you can expect a blessing within a month's time. Those people are charlatans and false prophets. Do not listen to them. They're misrepresenting the heart of God. Please don't listen to them. That's not what he's saying. This isn't a prosperity gospel deal. He's saying if you sow seed... What do you get back? Fruit. In other words, you don't get back what you give. Right? I mean, that's the analogy. How how many farmers go out and they scatter seed and they're hoping that in three months' time they go out, look at all the seed. No farmer does that. They don't want seed. They want fruit. Why? Fruit is far more valuable than seed. Is it not? I mean, when you take a bite of, of a fresh piece of fruit, that's so much more enjoyable than the seed, right? <laughs> this is like sunflower seeds or pumpkin seeds. But even that, you can make an argument. I mean, sunflowers don't result in something that's eat- edible, right? So, so maybe that's the exception to the rule. But pumpkins, at least. You don't want back seed. You want back fruit because fruit is more valuable. And see, if you're giving generously, what... We should ask the question, what do we get in return? What is the seed or what is the fruit that comes back 
from the seed that we sow. Well, verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 9 says, As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. That's the seed. And their righteousness endures forever. That's the fruit. Just like he was quoting Exodus before, now he's quoting Psalm 112. And the word righteousness means right relationship. It means relating to people in the way that God intended. And what he's saying is, when God's people live generous lives, this is what happens. Relationships are restored. The poor are healed. Conflicts are reconciled. Families are put back together. It is a picture of the life that is coming in the new heavens and the new earth. That is what's happening. See, we know this. That this is, is what's on its way. 2 Peter 3.3 3, or 3.13 puts it this way. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. That's the day that's coming. Where righteousness dwells. And what he's saying is, on that day, everything is going to be right again. Every sad thing is going to come untrue. Every relationship between God and humanity is going to be healed. Every relationship between races and classes and sexes and between us and the earth and even us and our own bodies, all of it's going to be put back right the way that God wanted it to be in the very, very beginning. That day's happening, family. Which means... If that day is on its way, and it is, as surely as Jesus is on his way, on earth as it is in heaven, then that means that when we scatter our gifts, when we are generous with what God has given to us and what he's put into our hands, when we're sowing generously, we are bringing that day here now. No less. Do you believe that? You you actually get to participate in the inbreaking of God's kingdom in the world as you are generous. That's amazing. I mean, that should shock us. That is so much more valuable than the temporary resources that we've been given. Is it not? I, I, I remember I was raising money uh, as a missionary to college campuses when I was with a group called Crew. And um, you have to raise everything that you live on. And so I needed to go around and, and uh, raise support with ministry partners and ask for them to support my ministry. And um, I realized that if I could quantify um, what their gift was going to produce in the ministry that I was about to do, that I was far more effective uh, in, in terms of raising the support that I needed. So I, I went and I figured out that $100 a month in terms of monthly support equaled approximately two hours a week on campus, which over the course of the semester equaled 10 students hearing about the gospel and two, peop- two Christians being discipled to then go and tell other people about Jesus. And I, I remember I was sitting down with a, a guy, a single guy, he's actually a, 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 fa- a faculty member on campus who is also a Christian, and I was telling him about this, and he, he stopped me, and he, he went, $100? I spend that on food a week. He said, you mean to tell me if I just fasted one day a week, then I could make that up in no time flat, and you would have what you need to do this ministry? And people would hear about the gospel, and people would be discipled? 
just by that small sacrifice in my life? Because that's way more valuable. I can go without lunch tomorrow. And he did. That was his choice. He sacrificed uh, just a little bit of, of the thing that God gave him so that it would come back to him in, in fruit that was far more valuable. See, that's one of the things that will start to make you more generous, that will heal your heart, that will start to give yourself away from the Lord. But here, here's the deal, though. It's not enough. We can't just look at what our gifts produce and think that that's going to be the thing that does it for us. We need something deeper and stronger and more secure than that. We need a vision of the one who gave us the gift in the first place. We need a vision of the grace of God operating in our hearts and in our lives. And that's why Paul ends the section and he says in verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What's the gift that he's talking about? It's not money. It's Jesus. And he's saying Jesus himself, he is the gift, the greater gift. And if we understand the greater gift then we will be generous with all the other gifts. He's a gift. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, not also along with him graciously give us all things? I love the way that Tim Keller puts it off. He says, If you receive Jesus as God's gift to you, then eventually, whether in heaven or on earth, you will receive every other gift in God's treasure trove. All of it's going to be yours. See, either, either here on earth or one day in heaven, we realize that you want a home? God's got a mansion in his new kingdom for you. If you want resources, he has cattle on a thousand hills, and he will provide for you. If you want relationship, he is the God who never dies. And you'll be in relationship with him for eternity. You want time? You think you don't have enough of that resource? He's got an eternity waiting for you with him. Every resource you could possibly ask for or imagine, God has waiting for you if you receive his son. He's the down payment of all the rest. So if you have him, you know you're getting the rest, which means whatever other resource he brings into your life, you can use in the way that God would want you to use rather than the ways that our culture says to use it. So if somebody comes into my house and doesn't leave it in the state that I, that I want it to, ultimately it was a gift from him, and I've got a better house coming. Big deal. If I let someone borrow my car and they ding it up, I've got a few more waiting for me. It's okay. If, somebody, if I use a resource for someone and they squander it, guess what? My, it's, that's not my inheritance. I have a greater inheritance, so even if I give a gift and somebody doesn't use it the way that I want to, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what he's got for me. See, we'll, we'll use things in the way that he wants, but, but also we'll see that Jesus is God's treasure given for you. God gave him up. The Father gave up Jesus. Jesus gave up his life. That's what Paul's talking about. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What's he saying? He's saying, you know the grace of the gospel. And you know that you know the grace of the gospel when you are generous. I mean, if you wanted to put it the other way, 
if you need to be commanded to be generous, this is what he's telling them, you've never experienced the grace of God. Isn't that amazing? He was rich in every way, yet he gave it up for you so that you could be rich in him in, la- in ways that last forever. See, I'm, I'm, right now I'm um, doing premarital counseling for three different couples. This is the first time I've ever done three simultaneously. And so I'm noticing some patterns, okay, between all the couples. And here, this is one of the big ones. I never have to convince a groom to give everything he has for his bride. I never have to go, hey, you know what? Like, when you, if you have a house already, that house is going to be hers too. He's like, she's going to live there. Of course I'm willing to give it up. Everything that you make is now hers as well. Have you seen her? I mean, she's amazing. Why would I not give up that for her? Yeah, but you know, like, this is for the rest of your life, right? All the, every day of your entire life, you're going to spend together. It's now your own time, your own body is not just yours, it's hers. She can do whatever she wants with my body. <laughs> I never have to convince a future husband that it's worth giving up the things that God's given him for the sake of his bride. Why? She is a treasure to him. He loves her. See, when you love someone, you don't have to convince people to be sacrificial for the one that they love. When someone's a treasure, you don't have to go, hey, you know all those other treasures? You need to give it up for this treasure. They go, where do I sign? When can I express the vows? The day cannot come quickly enough, right? Do you love him? Do you know that he's a treasure? Do you know that he's God's great treasure that was given up for you and that when you treasure him, when you love him with your whole life, with your whole heart, when you see all that he's done for you and all that he is for you and all that he has in store for you, would you say in response, how much am I required? Never. You'd say, how much can I give? How generous can I be with those around me? Because he's been so generous with me. See, if you don't know him, though, please I say this with fear and trepidation. Disregard everything I've just said. <laughs> everything that I've just talked about in terms of generosity, please disregard it if you don't know him. God does not want your money. He wants your heart. Find out what it means to understand the grace of God. The rest will follow. It'll take care of itself. Press deeply into his grace and see what he does with it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the God of generosity who gives generously to your kids. Thank you that we have inheritance stored up for us in heaven in ways that we couldn't possibly imagine. And yet, even trying to wrap our minds around it, help us to understand that all of that is nothing compared to Jesus. If we get him, what else could we possibly want? And yet, we know that when we have him, you will graciously give to your kids everything that they need. Help us to rest in that. Help us to understand that. Build in us, God, through your spirit, a state of generosity. Help it begin with us that we might be this peculiar, weird, incredible people 
that other people would look at and go, I don't understand what's going on within them, but something must have changed. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, it can happen in me too. We want that, Lord, but we want it for your sake, for your name, not for ours. We pray in Jesus' name.